Welcome to episode 35 of the Going For Broke Outdoors podcast, a podcast by an outdoorsman for other outdoorsmen. I'm your host, Jeremy Gillespie. On today's podcast, I welcome Jake Bush to the show. In this episode, Jake and I discuss what it has been like to become a more recognized name and face in the outdoor industry. We discuss Jake's top five area approach, his trail camera strategy, the importance of well-thought-out access routes, and the pitfalls of assuming too much. This episode really highlights Jake's process and his approach to chasing mature public land bucks. I want to mention that I have a new heavy metal theme design available in t-shirt or hoodies. I'll put a link in the description if you want to pick one up and help support this channel. Lastly, I want to thank everyone listening for the continued support. Be sure to subscribe on YouTube or your favorite audio platform. And finally, I want to give a shout out to Uncle Lou at Stealth Outdoors for helping to make this podcast possible. Check out Stealth Outdoors at www.stealthoutdoors.com. Stealth Outdoors just released a new jacket and shirt in their innovative smoke camo just in time for the 2023 season. While you're visiting Stealth Outdoors, don't forget to pick up some climbing stick wraps, cam buckle covers, platform cable wraps, or stealth strip rolls for all of your miscellaneous silencing needs this season. Stealth your mobile hunting setup by visiting www.stealthoutdoors.com to silence your gear and place an order today. And now, on to the podcast. All right, today I'm joined by Jake Bush. Jake, welcome to the show. Jeremy, thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm excited for this episode. So over the past few years, you've gained quite a reputation on social media and deservedly so. So let's start there. I'd like to know if you've had any interesting interactions, either positive or negative, since you became a more recognized name and face in the industry. Uh, yeah, I have. And, you know, I'm the kind of person where I focus on every positive aspect of my life that I can. I'm just, if you talk to anybody that's close to me, I'm, I'm the overly positive person all the time. So I don't really get too caught up in the negative side of things or negative comments or anything like that. I'd really try to stay positive. So as far as positive interactions, I mean, man, I, I get, I, I have just dozens of conversations going with brand new people every week on social media, just through hunting and through fitness and everything else. And it's, it's absolutely amazing to see how many people are just doing their best to better themselves, whether it's hunting, whether it's, you know, personally as a man or a woman or through fitness or as a dad, whatever that may be. I have conversations with all sorts of people about all of those. Um, for my own selfish reasons, I have a bunch of guys that I look up to as well. You know, the one that sticks out right off the top, of course, is Andy May. I look up to Andy a ton as a man and as a hunter and just an all-around great guy. And I would have never even known who Andy was. Aside from the Beast forums, um, I was kind of hidden in the shadows back in the day on there. But aside from that, I would have never been able to talk to him. And through social media, I've actually got to have conversations with the guy. And that's just, it's unbelievable. So, yeah, lots and lots of positive interactions and, you know, we don't have to get into this too much, but I'm, a. I, I talk a lot about how important it is as hunters specifically to stick together. And it seems like there's all these divides out there, whether it's, are you a compound bow guy or a crossbow guy? Are you a public land versus private land hunter? You know what? I don't think any of that matters. I think that we need to just befriend each other and help each other out and stick together because it's going to be a lot harder for our enemies to take us down as one when we are unified as opposed to when we're battling each other. So that's my little rant. But yeah, it's been just a ton of positive interactions throughout the years, man. Yeah. Couldn't agree more about the unified front and 
it seems like anymore a lot of that stuff at least in in my opinion for whatever that's worth it seems like a lot of that comes from people that like haven't done anything yet you know they haven't shot a big buck or a couple big bucks and you know unfortunately jealousy is a, is a real part of the human nature and i like the quote i don't know i think it was dave goggin said it on joe rogan hate never comes from above and i believe mm-hmm. that so it's like yeah everybody get along the image of hunting is super important it's under threat all the time so i'm with you the more unified we can be the the more rights we have and and that's a great thing i couldn't agree more well, let's move on to uh, what advice would you have for someone who wants to get into making outdoor content and specifically what's worked for you and what would you avoid? So what's worked for me is really just staying true to who I am more than anything else. You know, I started this whole journey. I mean, really, it started for me as a kid. Even my grandpa used to film me all the time growing up, and I never did anything with any of that footage. Like, I just have... I've got uh, old thumb drives full of old footage of me hunting as a kid and as a teen. And so for me, it was just something where I wanted to be able to show my family the experiences I was having when I moved away. You know, I moved to Ohio to chase deer and I wanted to be able to show my dad and my brother specifically like, hey guys, look at how much fun I'm having. Like come down and have this much fun. Or in my brother's circumstance, he's, my brother George is the best fisherman I've ever met. And he, he won a ranger boat last year. He's starting up in some of these local bass circuits and he's really, really good and passionate about it. But for me, it's always been a goal of mine to lead by example. And so I'm trying to lead by saying, Hey, look at, I chased a dream. You know, I went after something. You don't have to work in that factory eight hour shifts, Monday through Friday, the rest of your life. You can, if you have a dream, you can go chase that dream. And you know what? You might fail, but you can't be scared of failure. Failure is not going to help you at all. So uh, for me, it started as that. And then I would say I, I just did my best to not sell out. You know, there has been throughout the years, I'm sure a lot of people can say this, but a lot of offers come in for all sorts of things. It, you know, it could be like all these companies are always looking for people to, to push their products that are in some sort of spotlight. And the big thing with that with me is I wanted to make sure that I was very picky and choosy about the companies that I associated myself with. And I wanted to just make sure that a, I believed in the equipment and used the equipment and see that I aligned with their goals and who they were as, as people outside of the hunting space. And I feel like I've done a very good job of managing that for myself. Um, I've had, you know, very good relationships built off of every one of those businesses that I've worked with. And I have a lot of friends from each one of them. So that was really important for me was just to, to stay true to who I am, not seek out any sort of fame or any sort of money or anything else. And just let everything, everything come naturally over time. You know, it's, you can't rush the process and you can't fake your way into the process. And, you know, there's still a lot of times where I personally like look at myself and I'm like, you know, I, I almost, I want to do my best to not be a, uh, I guess I've never talked about this, but I want to, I want to do my best to just not be that fraud. I want to be the guy that's actually out there putting the miles in and working hard and doing it for the right reasons. I don't ever want to be the guy that's faking anything. I don't want to be the guy that's like, Oh, look how hard I'm working, but I'm not working that hard. You know, for me, it's very important to just stay as true to myself as I can and just document the process along the way. Now, those are all great points. And I think people are a lot smarter than uh, some of these advertisers give them credit for sometimes because 
it's to me anyways, it's real transparent and it's real obvious when someone isn't genuine or they're not putting in the work or they're just pushing a product because you know there's an endorsement deal or whatever. And I mean, I get it. That's how a lot of these shows are paid for, especially the bigger stuff on network TV. But it again, it's real transparent. And I think people, especially in the you know the age of the internet, are real wise to those uh, sales tactics these days. I agree with you. Yep. So I uh, I think a lot of people have seen the bucks that you've killed in the past few years. You've done done some great videos on YouTube. Those have got tons of views. I've checked those out again in preparation for this podcast. I had already watched the two uh, the dad's buck and the one that you killed the first year you moved to Ohio. What I haven't seen or heard as much about, and I, I'm interested in it, is your formative years as a bow hunter, and maybe touch on your move from New York to Ohio. Can you tell us a story maybe about the first solid buck you killed in New York with a bow and some of the lessons you learned from that, and maybe a few aha, aha moments when things started to click for you? So my, I've always been around hunting in some way, shape, or form. Uh, I posted a picture. This was a couple, maybe a year ago now on Instagram, and it was me. I couldn't have been more than like three or four years old. I had a big puffy purple jacket on in the back of my dad's truck holding the buck. And it was just his buck. And I, I just always, that was my way of connecting with my grandpa and my dad growing up. And they were always hunting. They were scouting a lot. And I just wanted to be part of that crew. Like I wanted to be one of the guys. And so I would tag along as much as possible. So, uh, my earliest memory of deer hunting is, man, I couldn't have been more than maybe five or six years old with my grandpa. And he had, he used to hunt like a bunch of fields. We had some farms right around our house that we could hunt and he would hunt this big lone oak tree out in the middle of this field. I mean, so far away from killing a deer, (laughs) but it was a great observation spot. And so, uh, we would go up there and he had two by fours that were nailed into the tree. And then we get up and they had like the two by four platform, you know, the old wooden platform with plywood on it. And he would always take a camo blanket and I would lay under that blanket. And, uh, I just remember watching deer with him. And I remember like him teaching me how to not spook deer because we'd have a doe come in, for example, and I would pop my head out of that blanket real fast and she'd run off. And he's like, Jake, you got to move slow. You got to peek out of the blanket. And just little by little, I would learn those things, but I was always around it, man. It was, uh, I got my first bow when I was three or four years old. And you know, this is my grandpa introducing me into this. And this is going to be really important for me moving forward with my son, but I just, I was introduced to it early, fell in love with it. Um, and I just, the minute that he would let me go out there with him, I did. And he actually let me take my bow with him out in the, so we had this shooting tower on this little, it was like a 30 acre piece that we could hunt and it was brush hogged at one point. So it was really thick and all they would ever do, there was fields on all four sides. All they would ever do is just brush hog trails through it. It's actually like when I've drove through Michigan, you see a lot of these in the CRP fields or the goldenrod fields where it'll be like a tower and then you'll see the lanes for muzzleloader or rifle or whatever it is. And he would let me take, it was my grandma's target bow, like a 40 inch axle axle. It was a sparkly blue bow. And he would let me take that up there with him. And I wasn't hunting at the time, but I could just go sit with my bow up there on a milk crate and watch the deer. And, uh, it was a lot of fun, man. I, when I was finally old enough to hunt, um, we used to sit up into, on top of that thing and we would watch deer all over the place. And my first memory of mobile hunting, or at least what got my mind working, and I've always been like this. I've always, 
anytime anybody gives me information, even as a kid, I would always question it. And I was really terrible in school because of that, because anytime a teacher would give me information, I always wanted to understand their thought process or their reasoning behind the information they were giving out. And it would, I'd get, I'd, you know, they didn't like that. They didn't like that pushback, but what it was is just, I always wanted to have a deeper understanding of everything and it just comes off the wrong way sometimes. But so we would sit up in that tower and we'd always watch deer in the fields way off to the side. And, uh, one day I was up there with my dad and my grandpa and I told him, I was like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to go over there where that deer comes out every night and I'm going to shoot that deer. And they laughed at me. They're like, go try, like, go for it. But that, that, that'll never work. You'll never kill one on the ground with your bow. And so I was like, okay, I'll show you guys. And I veered off that way. You know, we didn't have cell phones or anything back then. So I get a little lost. I'm trying to find where I'm going. I finally end up by the creek. And then I cross the creek and I can see the field. And I get set up in the hedgerow in the corner. And sure enough, I'm not set up very long at all. And that buck pops out at 15 yards in the corner. And before my dad and my grandpa passed, hearing their story, like the recollection of this story was just awesome because they were like hooting and hollering and like, they're like, I can't believe he's actually going to do it. There's no <laughs> way. And this buck comes out of the corner and he's staring at me and I draw that bow back. It was uh, Martin Tomcat was the bow. I draw that bow back and I had my grandpa, I always had hand-me-down gear. Well, the first release I had was a Fletch Hunter. If you know what that is, it was like a black strap and then it was a string tied to the black tube with a little trigger on the end. Oh yeah, I know exactly so what you're talking that, about. Yeah, you have to you had to tie a knot in the string for the length, you know, so it would like so it was set up for my grandpa. I took the wrong one. So it was cold out, it was late October, and I draw back and I get on him. And I mean I'm, you know, dead eye at fifteen yards with this bow as a kid. And so I go to try to hit the trigger and I can't reach it. And so they oh, no. see me like <laughs> doing this number you know what i mean i'm doing i'm like reaching for it and that buck jumped and skipped and hopped and ran off i never got a shot at him but after that day i remember thinking like well every time i see a deer this is where it started for me every time i see a deer i'm just going to get down and go where it was and i'm going to try to kill the next one that comes out and i'll tell you what man as a kid so the next year my grandpa got me a climber a summit viper and as a kid i was getting on a lot of deer, just based, no betting, no tactics or anything. Besides the fact that I read a book on the art of still hunting, I believe is what it was called. It was, I've still got it back home. It was something to do with still hunting, a really old book. I read that. And this guy talked about how many steps to take, you know, per minute with the wind in your face and always stop by some sort of cover. So I, I read that book and I would just still hunt through the woods with that climber and I'd see a deer and most of the time they were running off and I would just go over there and set up. And man, I killed a lot of deer doing that before I knew any, any other tactic. I was just find a deer, go that direction. If you get set up and you see one further over, get down and go over there. And I would just play that game and then field edge wise for a long time, because a lot of our field edges were the trees had a lot of limbs and stuff. I couldn't get the climber in them. I just ground hunted a lot growing up. I would just sit I used to just go sit on a hedgerow and put mud on my face and just crouch down and have one shooting lane through the, you know, I'd, I'd sit back like six feet to nine feet and shoot through that little goldenrod edge on the side of the field out to the deer, wherever they were at. So that was kind of the upbringing. Um, my first good buck was actually the first day that I could legally bow hunt and it was, it was sheer dumb luck. So I'm sitting in a, it was October 28th. It was my birthday or maybe the day after it was right then though. And, uh, 
we had a, a cell tower that got put in on the property and it created like, it was always an inside corner of a field, but that cell tower created like a 20 foot wide sliver of timber that they had to go through because there was a really steep hillside on the other side. So they had no choice but to go through that one section. So my grandpa knew that he put a ladder stand there and out of that ladder stand, I, so I'm sitting there my grandpa took off. I could hear the four wheeler take off and I get down and I get out of the ladder stand and I'm standing on the ground in front of the ladder stand. And I just watched this at the time, the biggest buck I've ever seen run across the, uh, the, it was an alfalfa field at the time and he stopped and it was a pretty far shot. It was probably mid 30 yards and I drew back and I had a, this is before I knew anything. I had a Spitfire broadhead on and I used to shoot those at the foam target. So this one, like they would get really hard to open. Well, when I hit that deer, it one lunged him and he ran like a mile, but we ended up finding him. He's the, the buck right there. Nice. This the skull plate buck. Yep. He was 115 inches roughly, but, uh, at the time, the biggest deer my grandpa and my dad had killed in the 40 years hunting up there was like a hundred. So they would, we, we took that thing to every bar in the town of Randolph <laughs> and showed it off. And I mean, they were like, this is the biggest deer you'll ever kill. It's a buck of a lifetime. That 115 was my buck of a lifetime. And, you know, I had a horseshoe up my butt and, you know, I got the whole, the whole riot act, but, um, but it was, you know, that was kind of a fluke obviously, but my strategy growing up was always just before anybody had knew the term mobile hunting or before there was even a podcast about hunting, I would just move around and try to find them. Like I would multiple times, I would tell my grandparents, uh, you know, I live with my grandparents from 16 on, I would tell them, Hey, I'm going to go out and hunt today. It's a Saturday. I'll leave. I leave, you know, 5 a.m. I'm like, I'll be back at dark. And they're like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, I'm going to stay out there until I kill one. I'm just going to walk around and find them. And I would even loop around the same property. It was, I don't know, maybe it was less than 100 acres for sure, this farm. But I would just make big circles all day. And I would kill deer doing it. They were never (laughs) good. You know, they were never good deer. Um, but then as I progressed, so I, I joined the service and hunted out in Montana. Actually, I was stationed out of Great Falls. I was in Malmstrom. Oh, nice. So, yep. So I hunted the Bob quite a bit. Um, and that was, that was tough hunting for sure out there. I I was really focused on elk for the most part. Um, but I moved back to New York. I bought just a house that was on 37 acres and I tried the food plot game a little bit and, you know, I just, it was fun. I, I actually killed a deer on my property, but it was, it just wasn't the same for me. It just didn't get me fired up the same amount. The the most fun thing about that, like my biggest memory was my grandpa coming out with his Kubota and we were putting the food plots in together. You know, that was like the core memory there for me. But so I jumped back over onto public. I just started doing in, in a mixture of private. Like I never used to, I never played that game until I moved to Ohio where I lost all my access growing up. I had access to private. So I would just, you know, one of my big tactics in New York, probably my biggest tactic was glassing summer bucks and then glassing them up to the opener. And it was typically alfalfa fields or hay fields. Uh, I hunted around some cornfields and did okay, but my biggest success back home was alfalfa fields, hands down. And I would just glass them over and over before I had a ton of tactics. And, you know, I would, I got into scouting at the latter part of that, but I would just glass them, watch where they would come out in the field. And then I would go in the next day and kill them based on the right wind direction. You know, I had a, uh, my first mobile stand was a lone wolf assault and the big 36 inch sticks. 
and I would just lug that thing around and, and kill them out of that for a long time. So, so it's always kind of been a, a mobile process for me. And then I found out about the hunting beast. I found out about Dan Infall, uh, the THP guys, when they were with Midwest whitetail back in the day, that started ringing some bells for me because they were doing the public land thing back then. You know, their, their video titles were public land even back then. So, um, yeah, it's just been a, it's been a process, man. And, you know, then I moved to Ohio, obviously. And, um, I just took a lot of the tactics that I had back there as far as glassing to find bucks. You know, I was in, in the part of New York I was in, I was right in the foothills of the Alleghenies. So we still had a lot of hub systems that would dump out to ag. And so that was always a process of mine too. You know, the farm that we could hunt growing up had a hub on it. And so that was just a feature that I was very familiar with. And it just so happens that I came to Ohio and go scout hubs because that's what I'm used to. And I dive into a hub and there's good sign in there. And the first time I ever hunt a hub in Ohio, that's total dumb luck. But first time I ever sit in a hub in the state of Ohio, I killed a 186. And it was just like, you know, <laughs> I could I've killed a mature buck? Sure. But the, the, the fact that it was that deer is just, you know, total dumb luck, but possibly the real buck of a lifetime. The, possibly the, yeah, possibly the one so far. Yeah. You got a lot of time left, so let's not write you off yet. <laughs> I'm working on it. <laughs> yeah. Well, <clears throat> I've listened to a lot of your other podcasts and one of the things that I heard you talk about on another one was your top five area approach. So from what I understand, you continually reevaluate, reevaluate your existing hunting areas against the new ones that you're scouting each spring. And then you like to key in on your five top areas each fall. So I'd like to know, first of all, of those top five or as they've changed throughout you know, the last three years, what makes a big buck area? And then I'd, I'd like to know if you've seen any commonality across these five top five type areas in terms of terrain, food sources, water, anything like that. So that, that's a great question. I'll probably ask you for the, to, to redo the second part of that sure. after the first part, cause I'm going to lose my train of thought for sure. But, um, I, so the top five, the process there is just all the boots on the ground I'm putting on every year. I, I like to go in and see and still reevaluate a lot of these spots on a, on at least a every two year basis, just to try to get a lay of the land. You know, is there a new clear cut in here? Is there uh, some deadfall that's changing the way the deer are using it. Is there a beetle kill? Is there, I even had one area that had a bad mudslide and it totally changed the travel patterns in there. And it's something that you would just never think about. So like to reevaluate them. But my thought process with the top five is these areas are just going to continue to get fine tuned, uh, over the years where there are areas that I'm really trying to, the biggest factor for me at this point is finding areas that genetically have the highest potential because in Ohio, at least like in my home state, this approach works very well, but I can find a five-year-old deer in just about any of the public land around here. Like there is just, we have old deer on public land here, but the, that can change from an antler size perspective by as much as 20 or 25 inches. Like I have areas that the deer as a four-year-old like will be, you know, they'll average out as a four-year-old 150 to 160 inches. But I also have areas where as a four-year-old, they're 130 inches average, you know, you'll get an outlier, but so I really like to focus on the areas that the more 
like it's it's almost like you find a big track it's going to be a big buck you know what i mean it's it's easier for me to have that approach because i can use wood, woodsmanship and everything else knowing hey big deer just live here i'm not worried about what this big deer is going to look like now he's a four year he's a you know he's got a four finger track chances are he's going to be a big deer and so the way that i've fine-tuned those throughout the years a lot of trail cameras run a lot of cameras visual observations a couple spots that i've killed uh, finding shed antlers finding shed antlers is a pretty big one you know on an average year the last year was an outlier on the average year down here i find let's say 30 was the low end and i found up to about 60 since i've been down here um so you know i'm getting a pretty good idea what areas are holding good bucks so as far as like, that's the first thing I look at is I want to just make sure that the areas I'm spending time in genetically can produce the deer that I'm trying to chase. So once I get that figured out, I start looking into other things. You know, I want systems where I have as many factors as possible coming together. I like, I call it like stacking your factors. You know, I want to stack as many things in this area as possible. So I really like areas that I can gain historical data from but I can't gain historical data from every area based on shifting food sources. And I've heard some arguments against this, but my argument back to that is if I have a system that's full of white oaks and the white oaks don't produce, the deer just aren't there the following year. They're not. I mean, I have cameras to prove it. I have visual observations to prove it. They shift to the next good food source in the hills, especially because somewhere there's going to be acorns. You're going to have a prevalent food source, whether it's local ag, acorns, whatever it may be. Uh, a big thing down here is is baiting on private. So if you don't have any food on the public, chances are the deer are going to be hugged really close to those edges because they're going to be feeding from from corn feeders. I've seen that a lot. So I'm, I'm trying to find areas that are going to hold deer year after year, but also the entire year as much as possible. So if I can, you know, I'm a hub guy, but a hub is a huge terrain feature. It is an entire system. Like I just call the system that I'm targeting a hub. When I look at a system, I want a system with the most amount of bedding points, the most cover, the most bedding points for spe for specific wind directions and the most travel routes. Hubs are going to create that because they have that C effect with all those subridges going in different directions. So that just creates like this perfect storm. Could I go hunt a big ridge that has no topography change on it? Sure, I could, but it's not going to hold the same amount of deer, generally speaking, as a hub system because you have more opportunity for everything they need. So when I look at these systems, I like to just key on those right away because it's just congregating deer. So I, I find hubs, and then I'm like, okay, do they have clear cuts nearby? Do they have different ages of clear cuts? Like let's say one in 2012, 14, 16, 18, 20, or there's some new ones. Are there clear cuts that aren't on the maps yet? Because that's a huge thing that I key in on. I just I blew that one up, but <laughs> but the the I'm looking for just as much diversity in the terrain and in the cover as possible. And so those clear cuts do a lot for me. So once I have a hub with clear cuts, I like to start focusing on food. And what I'm focusing on there is is there nearby ag? Like let, let's say even within. You know, if the ag is within a mile and a half up to two miles, I've seen deer travel that, I mean, easy in the summertime. You know, I see them down in a bean field two miles away, and then I have that buck on camera two weeks later up in the hills on acorns. So as long as there's some ag fields within a couple miles, I feel like they're going to have a pretty consistent, you know, thing going on in that area. So 
uh, I want an area with white oaks. I want an area with red oaks, with chinkapins, with burrs, with chestnut oaks. I want just a, a ton of different acorns. That way, you know, if we have a bad white year, well, there's still reds in that system. We're kind of seeing that this year. Uh, we still have pretty good burrs and pretty good chinkapins, but the whites are really sporadic so far. I've only got a couple trees that are holding good whites. But so I'm looking for all that. And then the late season thing for me is either greenbrier or chestnut oaks. So if I can find like rocky ridge tops in the area that are, you know, they have really good drainage and they're not holding a lot of water up top, the chestnut oaks are going to be in there. And that's my key and my tip to finding sheds is chestnut oaks. My brother and I got on a chestnut oak ridge, south facing slope, uh, two years ago, and we found eight or nine antlers within a couple hundred yards, all fresh. And so it just congregates the deer late season. So now what I just did is I've got my summer food. I've got my early season food. I've got my late season food. I've got my does in the area for the rut. I've got everything I need to hold deer there all year. So there's going to be a lot more sign. The travel routes are going to be easier to identify the scrapes. There's, if you're holding deer all year, you're probably going to have a community scrape in that hub system. Now, if it's a hub system that only gets used during the rut or like because it's got a couple white oaks in it every couple of years, maybe you don't have that community scrape. But if it's one that's being used that has all these factors, it's really easy to go in there and identify what's going on. And so I just, I look for areas that set up like that. And then to take it a step further, I really like areas where they're bedded. Like I've got Kentucky coming up in three days and this is fresh in my mind because this setup is identical. They're bedded on a north facing slope. I do not want the deer to be bedded on a north facing slope and have food on the same slope because they can leave their bed and go up. What I like is when it's like a, let's say a maple ridge on the north facing slope, very little food. Let's say it's got beech and maple. Well, all on the, you know, if they go down to the bottom and up on the adjacent ridge, there's a white oak flat over there or there's red oaks, or they go down to the bottom, they run out the drainage, there's an ag field down there. So in Kentucky, I have that exact setup. I've got deer bedding on a north-facing slope. We've got a forecasted south wind. Uh, it's going to be hot out. It's going to be 95 degrees. Most people hate that. I have killed the majority of my big deer in over 80 degrees. My biggest deer have been, my couple biggest deer have been over 90. My biggest deer ever was 96 degrees at 3 in the afternoon because of ex what I'm going to explain right now. They're bedded on a north-facing slope that's steep, so it's shaded. What you just did is all the other ridges are getting hit with sun except for that north-facing slope. So he's going to be bedded on that north-facing slope all day long if it's steep enough. Your thermals never really pull like they would on a sun-faced slope. So you can cheat the thermal play a lot. You can get under that deer with him bedded on that north-facing slope, and your thermals very rarely are they going to go straight up. They're going to be more prevailing wind you know, oriented, they're still going to climb a little, but they're not going to climb like they would on that south facing slope. So you access in, you know, bordering the south facing slope. So that's taking your thermals. You circle in up against that north facing slope. He's bedded above you. Now at night in the afternoon, thermals start to dump down even harder out of all those systems. It's running out the creek bottom because you have a flowing creek. You're set up on the other side of the creek. So he has no chance of smelling you. And the first thing in that deer's mind is he wants water. So now he's coming off the north facing slope to hit that creek and that running water before he goes to the white oak flat on the adjacent ridge, and I'm waiting for that deer. So when I say I hunt hubs, people find hubs and they go target them, but they're not looking at all of those factors. I might scout. I've scouted, man, I bet you I've scouted. 
I mean, hundreds upon hundreds of hubs. And I've only got a dozen in four states that set up like that, that have every factor that I need on top of difficult to access. Well, we, ha we haven't even got into that yet. But if you can come up with that strategy, at least for me, early season, it's, man, you're eliminating 75% of the ground immediately because of the heat and you're underneath that deer and he wants water, you're just stacking those factors. So that's why these hubs are so deadly early season for me. So that's pretty much what I'm focusing on. And now at like, because I'm so focused on that early season kill and putting all those pieces together like that, what that does is it creates these very diverse systems that are full of good deer habitat. So it holds them all year round, like we talked about. And then I can target those deer in there in the rut. Like I killed my grind buck, uh, coming right down off a ridge, off a sub ridge. He was going into the hub and I was waiting on that sub ridge for him. But I killed the deer there uh, second day of season too. So it's the same system. It's just a different approach, different time of year. So when you find the right ones, they're good all the time. But yeah, that's that's pretty much my, my approach for fine tuning them is trying to just stack all those factors. And then you add in the genetic side of it. So I'll scout some of those and I'll think they're gonna be really good. I'll run cameras in it. I'll have some big body deer and some big tracks in the area. And then this like gnarly 130 inch eight point pops out. I'm like, okay, well I'll run cameras there for a couple years and see if anything bigger gets produced. If not, I'm just gonna, you know, it's in the notebook. I know it exists. So maybe I'll check in on it eventually, but I'm gonna spend more of my time in the areas where the better genetics are. Now do those areas each year based on your camera intel, like survivors from the end of the previous season, or spring summer cameras are you changing those top five year to year uh yes yeah so they change a lot it's it's always rotating in some way shape or form and you know i have the top five spots but i'm still running cameras in about 20 other systems as well so i'm really focused on those top five like those that's the areas that i assume i'm going to find a deer to kill and go after but if that doesn't pan out I've got a wide net casted all over the place as well. Last year I diverted from that and didn't do that and it bit me. But this year I'm back to doing what that was my typical strategy is cast the wide net, fine tune on a few pieces, reevaluate at the end of the year. And that's, that's pretty much what I'm doing this year. And then I wanted to go back to something you said about early season, especially in the hot weather, just like elk, you find deer bedded on North facing slopes a lot on these bigger slopes. And when I say bigger, I mean, taller elevation change from the bottom to the top. Are you finding, uh, specifically when it's hot, are you finding bucks still around the top third or are you finding them lower in, in the system where it's cooler along that Creek or, so or depends? It, I mean, I'm sure that some of that's situational. Great question. It's a, I was actually having this conversation earlier with my buddy. Um, it, it's very situational. And the reason being is it just depends on the terrain. So for Kentucky, for example, the majority of the bedding is actually in the lower half of the ridges. Like that's something that we keyed in on when we went down there and scouted this spring. And so there, I know that the bedding's already low. Those deer are just going to utilize that low bedding like they were going to anyways. Where I see a big change is in Ohio. Uh, a lot of the bedding, it, it's all over the place, but in areas that I have bedding in the upper third, if there's any bedding down lower, I do see those deer working down lower. Uh, the, the 186 I killed, for example, is a good example of this. There was a bed, there was actually beds all the way up on the points of these ridges about this area is probably 
500 foot floor to ceiling, roughly from the creek to the spine of the ridge. So, you know, if I go all the way up top, all the way up to the highest elevation, there's beds up there. And then there's a logging road that wraps the upper third with Greenbrier on it. And that's where the, the best bedding is the majority of the time. But as you come down through those bowls, they actually, they bed on the ridge points a little, but most of the bedding is in the bowls that I'm finding. So they're bedded on the bowls. As they come around, start dropping elevation on some of those logging roads. There's random beds that aren't hammered, but what I think that is is hot weathered beds. When I killed that 186, I thought he was going to be bedded way further back than he was. But, I mean, I I heard a stick crack, and I watched that deer get up out of his bed and walk right down the spine of the ridge, and he was only 80 yards from me. And I saw that with Dad's buck, too. He was bedded lower than typical, and I think that that's something to do with that hot weather. So I would just... It, it depends on the depends on the system. I think they just like being close to water. And honestly, man, from from the encounters that I've had, I don't think it's unreasonable to say that a deer will get up multiple times throughout the day if he's let's say, you know, sub eighty yards from water and go get a drink. Like I'm I'm pretty sure that that's what that buck I killed at three in the afternoon was doing because there's nothing else that explains that. Yeah, that's interesting. I. uh I don't know if you're familiar or how long you're hanging around the beast, but Joe Elsinger, Joe Ree on the beast. Yeah. 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 He had a a thread who knows when, but I read that and it really stuck with me. And so I'm from Michigan originally. I live in Montana now and in Michigan, I mean, I knew about thermals, but I had very, very limited understanding. And I think my understanding is a lot better now in Montana because the effects are so much more uh, noticeable. So, you, you know, you get in those deep drainages, early in the morning and, and you get in the bottom, it's 15 degrees colder. I mean, I think the same thing happens in Michigan on a much smaller scale. So it's just harder to notice, but Joe had a thread and he was talking about hot weather bedding and specifically his cameras on North facing slopes, lower uh, specifically along Creek systems were always lit up when it was like 85 or, or more. So I think there might be something to that. Yeah. And it, it's funny because, you know, the predominant prevailing wind at least where I'm at is typically going to be like a Southwest or a South, you know, in between South and West for the most part. So I just, you know, by happenstance tend to scout the North facing slopes more than anything else. So in that hot weather, it's, I'm already set up for it. Like it's just a, it's just a byproduct. And you know, that first year I was a little bit worried about how hot it was, but now I actually look forward to it. Like, it's so funny. And I see the same, I've got a bunch of theories on this. I see the same thing glassing bean fields. I like, we've kept notes all summer and we see substantially more mature bucks in bean fields above 85 degrees. If it is down in the seventies, I, I don't see as many of them. I know that's not going to be popular, but this is off of my, like my visual observations. It's not off of anything I've read or heard or anything else. So I, you know, I think just, just being willing to question everything a little bit and just like going off of what you're seeing because the, the early season hot weather thing, I mean, you tell most people that and they're like, well, you're nuts. Well, the deer aren't going to move. And I'm like, I mean, you can believe it all you want. But if I look at 90% of the deer on my wall, it was on hot days. I have killed very few deer on a cold front. It, so it's just, it's, it's funny how that works. But, uh, but yeah, I just, I think that it's important to just make sure that you are just asking why and questioning things and then challenging them too. 
Like even if you know something doesn't work or you don't think it works, just go throw a sit every once in a while and see what happens. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Yeah, and I think the hot weather specifically that might be in the popularity of cold fronts on conversely, I think that's a function of how people hunt, right? You're um, not exclusively, but I know you seek out beds and you're hunting near beds. So if you're in close proximity, that hot weather isn't as big a factor. If you're more of a field edge, food plot hunter, oak flat hunter, you want the cold front because that gets those deer up earlier, gets them moving farther. And I think that's why it's more popular. But yeah, I'm with you. This uh, deer right there, that was like 87 degrees when I shot that one. So it it doesn't discourage me completely either. So, I mean, you just got to be in the right area. Yeah, they're somewhere all the time. That's the biggest, that deer is alive in daylight somewhere every minute of the day. So it's just a matter of how close you can get. Yeah. And then before we move on, you said uh, one other thing that if people are newer or learning about thermals for the first time, that's real interesting. You talked about the uh, south slopes having a stronger thermal effect than the north slope. Uh, For people that, like I said, that are newer to thermals, dive into that a little bit and explain, you know, kind of the mechanics there. Yeah, so it's actually really interesting. If you're going up through a draw or a canyon or a ravine or anything else, uh, any sort of drainage, if it is a system, which typically I, I seek out these systems, where if you're walking up the way the, like the creek runs out the drainage, so on each side of the creek, you're going to have a north side of the creek and a south side of the creek. So the north side of the creek, that ridge is going to be the south-facing slope, and then you know inverse on the other side. But that south-facing slope is getting hit by that sun the majority of the day. The sun is heating up that slope, and what it does is it creates that hot air, and that hot air rises. So what people don't really talk about a whole lot is where is the air that's rising coming from? It's got to come from somewhere, right? Well, you don't have the same sort of pull on the other side. So what I see in a lot of circumstances is if you get in one of those really steep drainages, I actually see the north-facing slope have downward thermals throughout the day because it's a vacuum effect. You know, it's Everything in life, is it's a give and take thing. This side's going to rise. You have to have that air coming from somewhere. So it's it's getting pulled from that north-facing slope in some way, shape, or form. It's also getting pulled from the, the cold water in the creek or down that drainage as well. But So for access, if you know a deer is bedded on a north-facing slope, whether it's a hub system or not, what I like to do is I like to hug the south-facing slope on my access because it just takes my scent and it is, it's just out of the system. It, you know, it climbs to the top of that ridge, and typically that, that ridge, when you get to the top of it, is going to be an east-west ridge that that south-facing slope is attributed to. So if you have a west wind for the day, it hits the top of that ridge and the west wind takes it and it's gone. It's out over the river or the ag field or whatever it is down below. You have no scent profile at all if you can play that right going in there. You know, I hear a lot of guys that say that they wait to hunt low until the thermals start dropping. And the thing that I've, I, I believe that for a long time, and I definitely see that there's situations where that is the case, but don't discount the situation where you might have a sun-faced slope, the slope that you can actually, you know, walk next to, to pull your thermals as well. So, you, you know, you don't always have to wait until that hour before dark to go get set up below a deer. A lot of times, all you have to do is just learn how to play the thermals right in the hills, and you're going to have some sort of advantage in some way, shape, or form. I, uh, you know, I hear a lot of people talk about how the wind swirls in a hub, too. And I've got a couple things that I do to combat that. There's some of them where it just does swirl. But if you have a hub that has a drainage, 
running to like an ag field. Well, I want that to be running the same way the wind's blowing for that day. Otherwise I won't hunt that system for the day. Like if the drainage is running towards the, you know, from west to east, towards the east, well, I want a west wind because that wind is going to be hitting me in the face as I'm accessing into that hub. And if I stick, so now the wind's hitting me in the face. And if I stick to the south facing slope, as I'm going into the hub system, you're going to have in the center, you're going to have a little swirl. But if you're right on the edge of that swirl where the thermals are pulling up and the prevailing winds hitting you in the face, you're almost bulletproof as long as you don't, you, as long as you don't go too far. And what I've seen is like, if you go too far, you might as well go right up the ridge that deer's on. In my opinion, I don't like to hunt like, like right in the hub very often, unless I have the perfect conditions. If I have any swirl down below, I get really aggressive. So the thing I tell people is the worse the wind is in a hub, the more aggressive I am, which is probably the most backwards thinking ever. But <laughs> if the wind's bad in that hub and it's swirling and you don't think that he's going to be able to come in that hub without smelling you, go after him, go get him, go get that buck and climb up that ridge system and get whatever advantage you have in your favor. Now, when you're talking about uh, going up the ridge system, specifically on swirling wind days, what's a setup look like that? So let's say the bucks, just for this example, it's bedded at that one third, the wind's coming over top. What's your, are you still hugging that um, south side of the slope to pull your thermal up or are you kind of curving around that bowl coming in from the side? So yeah, it depends on the exact system. I can think of one system where I have a bunch of sub ridges that jut out and they're, they're tiny. They're like micro sub ridges. And what I can do there is each sub ridge will still have a sun face slope to some extent. And so I'll actually climb up one of the sub ridges and try to hunt just off the backside of that. And so the thermals are pulling up like the bucks bedded here, right? On a North facing slope. If I come around and I set up on, let's say the this slope, this subridge is pointing, let's say northeast. The wind's coming over top of that. But if I get set up over top of that spine of that subridge, you've got the thermals pulling up this side of the subridge, and then you have them dumping down the back side of that. And as the night progresses, my thermals are actually pulling back towards the creek. And when he comes down the subridge he's on, I've got a 20 yard shot. So if it's a really small thermal hub, you can actually hunt the subridges and get up on the subridges to cheat that just enough. But you got to be careful. Each situation is going to be different. And, you know, I, I talk about wind mapping a lot. I do think wind mapping is very important, but nothing beats the real time intel you're going to get from using milkweed when you're in there. Like I've blown a lot of hunts up because I was just wrong and there's nothing you can do about it. But what I've learned is you know, fine tuning some of these setups. I figured out little intricacies and little ways that I can hunt these spots that just give me that little advantage I need. And a lot of times it's as, you know, there's areas where if another deer comes down before that buck comes down, my day is over. I'm gambling that bad sometimes where if he's not the first deer in that system and I can't shoot him, well, the first deer down there is going to smell me if I can't shoot it. And it's going to blow everything else out of that system. Um, you know, I've had that happen with thermals. I've, I've had the thermals in my face before coming down a ridge and I've had the perfect prevailing wind. And what I've had happen is that prevailing wind pick up too much blowing down that drainage and actually create a Venturi effect and suck all the scent from down below by the Creek right back up that ridge backwards. And so I've got blown out. I got blown out by 180 inch typical on public land down here doing that. And I was just sitting there like, 
you've got to be kidding me. I cannot believe this just happened, but it's just the, the way that I look at all of this is I will always lean towards the side of aggressiveness on public land. And the reason being is I would much rather be the first person in there intruding on that deer and pressuring that deer than I would wait for the perfect conditions. Because if I wait for the perfect conditions and it takes a week, there's a good chance somebody else has already been in there, whether they're putting cameras up or hanging a ladder stand or walking their dog or whatever the case may be. I really want to be the first person in there. So I will risk it more often than not. And I blow some hunts up. I absolutely do. But my aggressive strategies, playing the wind, and even sometimes having a little bit of the wrong wind have produced deer as well. So it's it's give and take. Yeah, and personally, I think anybody that's in deer hunting and has some inclination towards trophy hunting, it should be a marathon, right? Like, yeah, you go in there, you blow that hunt up, but you learned why. And then for the rest of your life, you've got that information. So that's the, always the way I look at it because I hunt real aggressively too. Hardly ever. I mean, once in a while it makes sense, but hardly ever hang back. And if you mess it up, well, you figure out why you mess it up. And as long as you're doing like a, a post hunt analysis, right? Oh, here's why it messed up. Like you said, the wind was blowing stronger than I expected. And, and that created a vacuum. Okay. Well, don't hunt that spot in 15 to 20 mile an hour winds in the future. You know that forever now. I want to take a minute to mention huntingbeastgear.com. Co-founded by the big buck serial killer himself, Dan Infault, Hunting Beast Gear features state-of-the-art manufacturing techniques, the highest quality materials, and innovative designs that have been engineered, field-tested, and refined to perfection by a group of the best mobile hunters on the planet. www.huntingbeastgear.com delivers cutting-edge products, including beast gear climbing sticks with weight reduction holes designed to deliver incredible durability in a lightweight stick. Beast Gear Climbing Sticks also feature non-staggered inline stacking and double steps, all in a 2.2-pound package, including the fastening strap. HuntingBeastGear.com has also released the game-changing Beast Gear Hang-On Tree Stand. Designed to be the ultimate hang-on tree stand solution, with over four years of prototyping, testing, and refinement, the Beast Gear Stand features a 16-inch wide by 29-inch long platform. The stand comes in at an incredible 6.8 pounds, and it does all that without compromising strength or durability. The Beast Gear Stand is finished with a long-lasting anodized coating and features grade 8 hardware, high-quality Delrin washers, beast buttons, and adjustment knobs. For more details and to place your order today, head on over to www.huntingbeastgear.com. Now, back to the podcast. Yeah, and and then you have to trust that. And that's the other side of this is you have to, like once you get that data and you capture that data, you have to be able to believe in what you what you've captured. And so that's where trusting your gut comes into the whole equation, which is a huge part of, I would say, if you if you put a panel together of some of the best whitetail hunters in the country, I bet you it's full of guys that really believe in what they're doing. They're not second-guessing themselves. They believe in their strategies. They believe in their thought process and you know what they've seen happen throughout the years. And they're sticking to that plan. And that's what you have to do. Like, I'll tell you right now, I've I've had a deer in that system where, I was, you know, it's a high wind day and I'm sitting here and I'm like, man, I just want to go in there and kill that buck. The wind direction's right. But I remember looking at it and I was like, it's forecasted almost 30. I am not going in there. I'm just not going to do it. And I stayed out of there. And, you know, maybe I would have went in and killed him, but I stuck to the plan. And I think that that's so important because that's the only way you're going to evolve. If you're constantly second guessing yourself or backing out on your plan last minute or whatever it may be, I just don't feel like your evolution is going to be as quick as somebody that's really trusting their gut. Yeah, 
couldn't agree more there and and i think your gut is just it's your experiences coalesced over time right and your gut is a self-correcting mechanism i've talked about this before if something goes wrong you're less likely to do that in the future if something goes right you're more likely to do it so one of my other favorite sayings is there's no replacement for experience so just get out there and do it and the more you do it and the more reps you get the sooner that gut's going to correct and then your intuition's just going to get that much better well let's talk about cameras i know you're on a lot of cameras you kind of alluded to that already running cameras and five systems and then 20 additional and it sounds like when you are doing these top five maybe i picked this up from uh, something you did earlier but yes. sounds like you're you're yep. clustering your cameras in these areas is that correct okay so are there specific uh and, and i i know everything whitetail hunting situational right so let me preface this question with that but are there specific terrain features food sources sign that you're keying in on when you deploy these cameras so you know you got a hub system you're not just going in there and sticking 10 cameras on 10 random trees so what are you looking in the for hub systems like that i'm targeting your camera and the placement? ones that i'm finding Typically, I'm going to be there because of all those factors that congregate deer, like we talked about earlier. And when you have that, you know, major congregation of a bunch of mature bucks, they're going to lay down quite a bit of sign. And part of that sign is going to be some sort of scrape. So when I get into a hub system, if there's a hub scrape pre-made down in the bottom, it's got all the factors I'm looking for. There's a bunch of crossings. There's old historical rubs. There's a good hub scrape down there, like a community scrape that's dug into the ground great camera location. That's my favorite camera location. Actually, the reason being is I just, I feel like at some point in the summer or into the shift, I'm going to get almost every deer in that system on that camera. And that's for me, I've went back and forth on this a lot, but I'm at the point where for me, what cameras really do is they give me the inventory that the deer is alive and he exists in that area. And then after that, I want to go hunt that deer. I want to go figure him out. I want to find his tracks. I want to find his fresh sign. I want to know where his bed's at. And I want to go make a move and try to kill him. So, you know, can the cameras tell you that? Absolutely. I have cameras staged that will give me more information as well. Um, These hub systems have the drainages like we talked about typically. So if the drainages lead to either a white oak flat, a red oak flat, you know, some sort of food source, like an ag field, for example, and I know they're traveling down the drainage, like down the creek, I'll stage those cameras up that creek. And a lot of times you'll already, you'll find pre-existing scrapes there. So I'll just find where the trail convergences are in that system. You know, typically the drainages are actually pretty narrow. They're like sub 50 yards wide as they run out for even up to a mile. So I'll pre-stage cameras. Like let's say one at the mouth, one halfway. If there's any other bedding points or like a micro hub, I'll make sure I get a camera down in that bottom. And that way when I'm accessing that drainage, because 95% of the time my hunts, I'm accessing low. I access from the creek. Um, When I'm accessing up those drainages, I can check those cards and I can say, okay, you know, a buck came out to this ag field at 845 last night, you know, 20 minutes after dark. So I can't hunt right here. If he's here in daylight, I'm hunting him right here because I'm going to have more opportunities. I can push in further tomorrow if I don't kill him. But if he is, if he's here at dark, I can go up further. And then I go halfway and I look at that camera. I'm like, okay, he was here five minutes after dark. I need to go a little bit further. Well, the next step in that situation would be the hub. Well, now I get in the the hub scrape where the hub's at. And I don't even, at that point, I'm not even checking that camera for the day. But if I did check that camera, typically what it would tell me is those deer got down quite early 
and came down and crossed that system. So the, you know, the cameras staging up those creek bottoms, the main hub is like the, the source of inventory. I've killed deer on that hub scrape. I killed that, that buck right there, dad's buck. Dad's buck was, he literally came down, hit a white oak. The white oak was dropping acorns in the hub scrape. And so he came down off his bed 80 yards and it was the perfect storm. He just had everything he needed right there. So, you know, that was like kind of a, a best case scenario, but, um, I will in certain circumstances run cameras in between the bottom of the hub and the bedding points. So, you know, say that like it gets confusing if you have a bunch of ridges, like if you have an area that has 15 sub ridges, for example, well, yeah, you know, the bucks coming from this direction. But if there's beds on every one of those or in every one of those bowls, well, where's he coming from exactly? You know, I don't want to be two ridges off. So in that case, I'll find the ones with the better sign, like better buck sign or better tracks or whatever it may be. And I'll throw a camera on it. And that way, if I start working my way up that ridge, like especially if they're bedded in the upper third and it's a longer ridge where like, let's say it's, you know, his bed's 500 yards away from that hub. Well, now I go up that ridge point and I check that camera. I'm like, oh, he's not on this one. He didn't come down this one. I go back down and I come up the next one and bam, he's coming off this one. So now I work my way up that ridge system, but it's situational. I don't always do that. Um, I really am. I've started getting into, I I don't even have a term yet. Let's term it right now. We'll call it hub hopping. We're going to get into a, a hub hopping topic now where if you have two hub systems that are separated by one main spine of a ridge, what I've started to see, and a guy I really look up to a ton, Justin Wright, has talked to me about this as well, is those deer a lot of times will have a trail between the hubs. They want to hub hop back and forth. So a lot of times it's not the obvious thing, which is mainly going to be a saddle, right? What I've started to find is there's like these micro features. It could be, it could be something as simple as they'll actually go higher in elevation as long as they have more cover. You know, it could be a beach patch. It could be greenbrier up top, whatever that may be. I'm starting to find more and more. And I'm starting to be more accepting of the fact that these deer are actually crossing over the hubs up top. And that actually opens up and exposes a lot of weakness. But so I've started running cameras on those. And the cool thing about that in Ohio is I do have the ability to run a couple cell cams in certain areas because down low, you don't get any signal. So I have the ability to run a couple cell cams up top and I don't, I don't think I'll kill the deer there, but I've actually been able to get inventory of a couple good bucks without even stepping foot in that system. So now I know they exist without even checking the cameras. So now I can play my game in there and try to figure out how to kill them. I know they exist. So the, the hub hopping is something I'm really starting to, uh, figure out. I actually, I didn't mean to find this, but I found a scrape was two, two or three years ago. I found this big scrape on top of a ridge. I've got a couple different stories about this, but this particular one was between a hub that was set up for North facing and a hub that was set up for South facing. And on the top of that ridge, I put a camera up there and I would catch these deer actually shifting hubs on a wind switch day. So any day throughout the summer, because there was ag fields at both ends. So, you know, they would actually come out to the ag field that set up for the right wind bedding. So if they, if it was a south wind day, they were bedded in the hub for a south wind and they would go north towards that field. But if it was a north wind day, they would go the opposite direction. That's where I killed dad's buck. I killed dad's buck in the, he hub hopped to the other side. And then he was going out to a white oak flat. He hit the community scrape. 
and I shot him on his way to an ag field. And so, you know, catching these deer doing that is another thing that I've started to want to pay attention to. If you can find that feature, um, I really like above hogs backs. Like I can think of one of my, one of my favorite setups down here is if you have a ridge that's been clear cut, let's say a big, big, long ridge is clear cut and they're wind-based bedding right on the edge of it. Well, a lot of times what I've seen is if it's the right setup, like say there's acorns on the adjacent ridge, but it's at the, it's like up towards the top of the ridge. So you have that hogs back, like that drainage that runs up and they have to go around it. You know what I'm talking about? Like you'll have that really steep drainage. Yeah. I was going to say for people that aren't familiar, yeah, we call them hogs it, backs down here. Uh, we're like, miles, it's so a, exactly you can see them on a map, about. you know, you'll on a map. If you look at it, if you have a bowl in between two ridges, you'll see that Creek drainage run up the ridge and where it's the most steep, those deer have to go around the top of it. Those are excellent rut locations. I almost never hear anybody talk about how good a rut locations they are actually, but, um, Byron Horton is the guy that really got me going on them and he loves hogs backs. And so I've just started, you know, adopting his strategy there, but I'm using it for bedding as opposed to rut tactics so much. So if I have good bedding transition lines, like right by a hog's back. Yeah. And then they have to cross that to go to like, let's say white Oaks, this circumstance I'm telling you about in my head is he has to leave his bedding, a clear cut, go over the hog's back and travel 50 or 60 yards. And he's on white Oaks that are holding acorns this year. Well, I've got an SD cam on a, it was actually, it's a side hill scrape. So it's a maple that grew sideways and they've dug that out underneath it and scraped it up for years and years and years. All the branches are broken off. They're coming out of that bedding and hitting that scrape and then dispersing to white oaks. So I can come in over the top of that ridge, get set up to where my thermals will be pulling, but I want to be set up to where like a little bit past the scrape to where my prevailing on a west is taking my scent. So it's going to be going down the hill and away, and that deer is going to circle around and hit that scrape. If he's big enough, he's in a lot of trouble because it's got all the factors I need in a very good genetic area. So those are, those are a lot of the... I guess that was a long response. That's a lot of the areas that I run cameras. Um, but I'm always open to trying anything. Creek crossings, uh, you know, trails on the side of a ridge that have no terrain features or no like topography changes at all. I've got some cameras in some really weird spots just to keep myself in check. Well, a bunch of follow-up questions there. And, and first of all, I couldn't agree more with the uh, hogs backs for the rut locations. So, that buck is a Southern Ohio buck that I killed in that exact setup where when you have the wind coming over top of the ridge, you're set up close to the top because the drainage is so steep. And then, uh, you're, you're, you know, your, your scent's going right down that drainage and the deer aren't ever coming in there. They need to be steep and deep though. And usually if you find a good one, they've got a lot of deadfall and stuff in them that makes them even, even worse. So great tip there. And mm -hmm. wanted to go back to the thermal hopping, the, the thermal hub hopping. Have you found any commonality in that? So, for example, do the two hubs need to be like a couple hundred yards apart? Do they need yeah, so any certain features in Ohio, you that to be more consistent? This is where I've really started to see this so far. Actually, I've seen it in Indiana as well, um, a little bit in Kentucky. But these three states have a similarity in their ridge structure where the top of the ridges typically not going to be very wide. Like the areas that I'm hunting are very steep ridges. I mean... Like you can, you know, it's tough to, it's tough to just walk up them. Like a lot of times I'm grabbing branches or anything else I can, 
you know, you lose a step to gain a step kind of ridge. And so the top of the ridges, the, at least these subridge spines may only be like the true top may only be 20 yards to 30 yards wide. And then it's right back to steep ridges. And I really like those ones because I see a lot of side hill travel. And if the deer wants to get to the other side, he's going to find the most covered across the top of that ridge. In my opinion, mature bucks hate crossing the spines of ridges in daylight. But with that tip from Justin, I've been dialed in on a couple of good bucks this year with just that cover. You find the cover where they're crossing. It's just, it's an absolute, you know, game changer. And it's, you can't pick it out on a map. That's the best part about this because the ridge I'm thinking about has a big saddle and the deer do not utilize that saddle. They're going, they're gaining more elevation than that saddle just to stay in cover. And so it's just something where, you know, you have to actually go experience it. Um, but I would say that typically it's going to be the ones that I've seen anyways are going to be ones with different food sources. So like if you have, you know, white oaks on one side, and then you have the better bedding because of deadfall or a clear cut or anything on the other side. Well, then what you might see is those deer bedded on, like, let's say the one to the south, and then they'll cross over the spine of that subridge to go into the one with the white oaks, for example. But if they have everything they need in the hub they're in, I don't think you're going to see that as much. Interesting. Yeah, that's uh, funny you said you can't see it on the map. I feel like with the evolution of mapping technology, it's so good. There's so many different options now. I almost feel like the next evolution is <laughs> is back to boots on the ground, right? Because all these spots that people have learned are are consistent deer travel. And it's not like those are going to go away. You know, they'll still produce if there's no hunter pressure, but they attract more hunter pressure than ever. So those those spots like you're talking about that are consistent avenues of deer travel, but can only be found it is on the man and I feel like you know i can say the same thing about stay hubs. one step ahead right like, now he, I, we talk about hubs all the time now like if you talk to anybody hubs are like the new hype right that's what i keep hearing from people um but the thing is from what i've seen the majority yep. of people what they're looking for is they're looking for the very obvious hubs so they're looking for these hubs that are massive i call them macro hubs and i pretty much stay out of them what i really talk about is micro hubs and I never used to specify this because it, I didn't think I, like to me, that was just where my mind went immediately until I started seeing people focusing on these macro hubs. Like I've had guys that send me screenshots and they're like, hey, what do you think of this? And I'm like, well, there's four roads that split that hub system because it's a mile wide. Like, yes, it's a hub, but holy cow, man. I mean, there could be a, a thousand scrapes down yeah. there. So what I'm talking about is you'll have the main drainage of this system. And then as you start going up the Creek and you're gaining elevation, you're going to like, let's say that you have three ridges that jut out. You have two this way, and then you have a spine in the middle, right? So it, there's two drainages. It, the drainages create a Y. Well, where they create the Y, yes, that's a hub. But if you follow those drainages up, chances are they're going to be more hubs. And those are the hubs that I'm talking about. It's not the main one. It's the secondary hubs that are further up the ridge. And that also helps you with your thermals at night. Because as you gain elevation, the more elevation you gain, the more thermal pull you're going to have down at night because those thermals have, they're not going to pull up on you. They can continue to fall, you know, even more elevation. Where like if you're down in a bottom in a hub, the thermals are only going to fall until they pool and then you'll start seeing that pulsing effect. Like I see this a lot, the thermals will start pulsing. But if you're, you know, halfway up the elevation of that ridge in a, in a micro hub, the pooling effect is going to be much later. A lot of times it's after dark because you have so much, 
you know, you're not filling up the swimming pool as fast. It takes a long time to fill it up because you're a lot higher up. So that's just something to pay attention to. Um, but yeah, the, this, the hub thing, the ones that you can see on a map there, I do have good ones, but the, the, my favorite ones, you can't even tell they're sub ridges necessarily. Like you'd have to have a really good map. If you're looking at, you know, some of these, uh, topo maps that aren't as defined, there's no way you'll pick them out. It just looks like a drainage running up the side of a ridge. But when you get in there, there's four or five little micro points, little, they could be 50 yard points. They don't have to be big, but there's some deadfall. There's some green briar. There's good bedding in there. And if you can sneak in there, well, that's where the big deer are at the majority of the time. No, great tips there. And the, you know, filling up the pool, that's a great analogy, right? You're in the very bottom and some of the, other uh, content that I've listened to about hubs, the guys you can tell that know what they're doing, they're talking about exactly what you're saying, being up a little bit higher and then hunting on like the down thermal side of that system. So let's say in your micro hub, you got that scrape in the bottom. If you have the intel that that deer is going to make it to the scrape in daylight, you're specifically on the downhill side of the scrape on the yeah, drain. Absolutely. Because then you're, you're taking advantage of that thermal in the evening. Well, one more question. Well, maybe two on trail cameras. So sounds like you're running cell and conventional. So that was, that was something I want to talk about. Let's maybe talk about real quick. I mean, service is an issue for you, right? So it goes out saying you got to have cell service to run a cell cam, but assuming service isn't an issue, where are you deploying the cell cams? I mean, everybody, at least everybody I know, they have some sort of budget, yeah. right? So it's not like a guy can go out and buy a thousand cell cams. So let's say you got three or four. What are the the areas that you're going to? If deploy you had service in everywhere are, in the hills, you know, the most effective. Like if you had it down the bottom, I would run them on that community hub scrape in the hub, just because you're going to get inventory. You know, throughout summer, early season, uh, during the rut, you're going to see activity pick up as they're you know crossing through there. If there's a hot doe in the area, I would I would personally run them there if I got signal down there. I just I just don't. But aside from that. You know, it's uh, it would be a crab shoot after that. To be honest with you, I would say the number one place I would run them would be just hub systems, like down in the bottom. All right, and uh, the other thing I wanted to talk about is apart from locating target bucks, which you covered, you're putting them in their inventory, and then you want to hunt them down. But are there other valuable pieces of information? So when you're reviewing trail cameras, and I guess, are you using pictures or videos? Maybe talk about that in this answer. If you're using one or the other or both and why. And then what's the other critical pieces of information, right? You're not just saying, oh, there's the buck I want to yeah, kill. What, so, uh, what else mainly photos looking at that and data? The reason being is I use cheap cameras. And a lot of the cameras that I use, I just can't view the videos on my phone. Like if I'm out there checking it on the fly, like Meyer cameras, for example, it gives me like a codec fault. It says you cannot view the video on your phone. So it's just turned into a pain. So I run them all on photo. Uh, like I said, the, the biggest thing for me is I just want the inventory that he's there. So, uh, you know, what I will do is if I get a picture of this really starts with even younger bucks, like I'll start categorizing deer in certain areas based on age, based on if I think it's the same, like the same deer, right? Like a split G2 buck or split brow or bully buck, for example. And I will just try to log as much data as I can. Um, you know, I'll log, 
uh, pressure, how long, wind direction, uh, specific weather patterns for the day that he was there. I'll try to go through this whole process basically. And it's actually funny, uh, Tacticam, if you guys do have any reveals, if you, I updated my app the other day, and now anytime I get a photo, it actually gives me all of that information right at the top of each photo. So let me, let me pull this up real quick just so I'm not lying to you. Let's see what it's got on here. It's got all sorts of information. Uh, so the first thing is temp. Then it's got wind direction. It's got pressure. It's got what the sun is, like daytime, uh, dusk, you know, dawn. And then it has the exact moon phase as well on every single photo that you get from Tacticam. So it took all of the work we used to do with like wonderground.com completely out of the equation. It saved me hundreds of hours a year, probably to be yeah. honest with you, but, but I'm logging all that same data. And then I categorize that. Um, I have like specific deer and then I have specific deer with specific wind directions. And I've actually, I was more into this a couple years ago than I am now, to be honest with you. And the reason being is I just, I've gotten to a point where there's just something for me, at least in Ohio, there's something about just hunting the deer down, like just truly hunting them down. That's, that's getting me fired up now. And so, you know, I'm going to obviously take that, but I'm not, I, I mean, I used to spend so much time trying to create hundreds of folders on my computer for all of these photos and everything else. And now it's more of just, Hey, I, I trust my gut that this wind direction today is going to provide bedding in these areas. I trust my gut that these food sources are hot, that I verified these specific food sources. We haven't had a lot of pressure in here yet. I want to go in and just try to try to figure out how to kill that deer. And it, you know, it might be more of a chase, but it's just exciting for me right now. So, so yeah, so I take all that with, like I said, a two-year-old buck that has any identifiable features. And I try to just kind of log that specific data as we go. I'm just not as crazy about it as I used to be, to be honest with you. No, I can relate to that. So at one point before I moved out to Montana, I was running like 15 cameras in Michigan. And this will be my fifth season here in Montana this year. And this is the first year I've put out a camera at all since I moved here. <laughs> I've got two of 15 out. It, so I'm way ahead of where I was the last couple of years. Um, Yeah. So we talked about Andy May a little bit earlier in the podcast. And Andy was actually my last guest. And he said something that really resonated with me. He said, be aggressive, but don't be reckless, be a predator. And that's something that you seem to really have dialed in. I can just tell from, you know, watching your content, the, you know, the video, the 186, you know, taking as long as you did to get in there. So talk to me, talk to me about your mindset. Oh on hunt man, day it is. It's a, a whole process. What's that look like so to you? I, I psych myself up like it's, uh, you know, state championship football game on these, on these kill days. I just, I get really into it. It's what, it's what excites me, gets me, uh, gets me fired up. So man, I would say that, you know, I'll wake up in the morning. Uh, typically I'm early season, at least I'm hunting afternoons only. And because I like the deer to bed down, I like being able to make my moves like that is, that's just a hunt that I want right now. So I will, you know, wake up, I'll check the wind direction of the day and try to see what the weather's doing. Uh, is there any fronts rolling through? Is it going to rain on me? Is it going to be sunny out? And I'll just try to get a good gauge of that. Once I check the wind direction and I have a target, like let's say I have three different bucks I go after. Well, I'm going to try to look at my wind mapping data, a little bit of my camera data over the years and figure out, Hey, is today the right day to go in there or not? Like this is where I start weighing in 
my conditions versus the pressure that I think is going to get introduced in that area by somebody else. So if the conditions are lined up, you know, decent, and I think I can get away with my kill location, my hunt, if I think there's going to be pressure in there, I'm diving in there. If I think that the conditions are a little poor and that there won't be pressure introduced in there that day for whatever reason, I might wait a day or two. That's how I killed the 186 was I waited one more day. So I, I hunted a totally different spot, observation sit the day before, even though I could have went in there. I waited one more day and I went in and killed him. But uh, dad's buck, I didn't have the perfect conditions. and I went in there and I just, I was worried about other people being in there. So I went in and killed him. So I'm looking at all that. Uh, you know, I start packing up around, let's say 10 AM. I go through all my gear. I make sure my sticks are tight. Uh, this year I'm running, <clears throat> this year I'm running a pretty light setup. So light tree stand, uh, three or four sticks, depending on the situation. I've got a Nalgene bottle holder on my waist belt. And then I've got a little pouch on the other side of the waist belt that holds a knife and a headlamp no backpack or anything. Like I'm going in light, I'm going in to kill. So I just make sure everything's good to go. Uh, I'll normally take a couple shots with the bow before I head out. Just make sure I'm shooting good, make sure everything's still on. I'm pretty religious about that. I really don't like going in the woods without shooting my bow for the day, just because I've had so many freak things happen throughout the year. So take a couple shots, make sure everything feels right, get warmed up and I'll eat lunch normally. And then I'll take off. Uh, I'll arrive, you know, anywhere between Depending on the access, it could be 11 to 2 o'clock roughly. And I just start, I would say more often than not, it's 11 to noon. And then I start this really long, drawn-out process of accessing that spot. So I'm going off a ton of different things for access. I'm, I actually, when I scout, I scout every single bed I can find, and I mark them all down. Like I've ran out of Onyx pins twice, and I think it's a 5,000-pin limit. So I ran out of pins twice. If you look at my map, like <laughs> it's just a blob for almost for like half the U.S. until you zoom way in, and then there's you can see land again. But uh, it's yeah, it's it's insane. But so I'll really go like... through that and I'll try to verify. Hey, these beds are here. These beds are here today on a wind-based day. The mature buck could be in like these couple locations. So just have that in your mind as you're going in, because I never really have a. I always have a like a last destination, but. I don't really want to get to the point where I'm hunting that. Typically, it's like, okay, I want to find the sign underneath a bed before I get there that tells me, oh, man, he, he he's not even that far back. He's right here. I'm going to kill him right here. So I'll just start whatever access route it may be. Uh, I found myself more and more over the years of doing these big, giant, like, J-hooking loops in. And, you know, I'll, like, I'll circle way in and around. And a lot of these spots is the way it's set up. Like, it'll be... Uh, it'll be like a, the, the public land will look like a J almost, and there'll be private wrapped around it. So it comes out, it comes in and it comes down and there's private on like three sides. Well, that little chunk right there, if that's in a hub, typically those are pretty good because people just don't want to get in there and access those. So I just have these drainages that I mark out that I try to slip down to get in there and I'll, you know, use the drainages and terrain to my, uh, benefit, even if it's like the backside of a ridge. I'll walk the back side of the ridge that I think the buck's bedded on sometimes. I'll just stay low and I'll try to sneak around the front side of it. You know, if he's bedded on the north slope of that ridge and I have to access from the south, this happened with dad's buck. I came in from the south. My wind is just off his bed a mile from him. Like I'm working that direction and I had to go past that deer and come back around up the drainage to kill him. 
Like at one point I was within 200 yards of him bedded down, crawling on my hands and knees because I wasn't down in the drainage there because he could see the drainage. So I was up on the ridge side on the adjacent ridge and I had to get down in the bottom, circle around a pond and then come up the drainage to kill him. So I made a J hook on him, if you will. So I always have, I would, I always tell people this. I have the craziest access routes. My access routes are insane. Like people look at me, they're like, well, why are you going through all that? Uh, because a deer has never seen a hunter do that. You know, he, he's set up for a situation and he's six years old. He's seen pressure in these areas and had these circumstances over the years. I'm trying to guess what those are in a lot of, in a lot of circumstances. Like, Hey, what has he seen before? Where do hunters normally come from? Okay. Well, I'm going to avoid doing that. I don't want to do what people have done for the last five years around this deer. I want to do something off the wall. And so that's what I do. I just come out with these, you know, crazy access routes. Um, the whole time I'm pretty much throwing milkweed. I'm trying to avoid beds like other beds that are, you know, around that area. Sometimes I have to go through them. When I killed dad's buck, I actually bumped a deer out of the bed that he uses on a south wind right out of that bed. And I thought when, when the deer ran off, because I was close, I was on my hands and knees at the time. When that buck ran off, I thought, man, it didn't sound like it was 250 pounds. So <laughs> it sounded like it was a buck, but it didn't sound like a giant buck with his antlers crashing through the brush. So I was like, ah, I, it was a buck, but it wasn't him. And so I just continued my route. I just didn't give up on the day. You know, I could have gave up and said, ah, it's over. He was bedded here for whatever reason, but I trusted my gut that he was wind based on the other side, like he should have been. And I just went with it. So I just, you know, I'm navigating my way through there. When I get about sub, it's all situational, but I would say for an average, like sub 400 yards out, I really start to slow down. Typically the last 400 yards is going to take me about an hour. And, and it's, sometimes it's even more than that. I would say, you know, if I'm in a system that's a really small hub, and this is why I think a lot of people have failures in hubs and they don't really get it. Well, I've had guys hunt with me that are like, there's no way that you can do this all the time. It's the most painful process they've ever seen because I'm, I'm basically stalking my way into the tree. Like, uh, last year I can think of a hunt where I was, I actually, when I get to the point where if I'm sub hundred, I start sitting down and calming down and I start listening for everything. Like I'll listen for squirrels. I'll listen for acorns hitting the trees. You know, I have a lot of these white oaks marked. So I'm like, okay, well, I just heard acorns dropping over there. They're raining like crazy. Like, uh, I don't have a white mark there. It could be a white. And then all of a sudden I hear acorns over here. And I'm like, ah, that's my white. That one's hot right now. So I start going over there to hunt that deer. So I'll work in and I just start listening for everything. Like when I killed that buck, I heard acorns and there was a bunch of squirrels underneath that tree. There was no squirrels on any of the ridges besides the tree that I killed him underneath. And so that told me I'm going to go hunt where the squirrels are at. Why would I not do that? And it just so happened that that's exactly where he was going to be. But so I really start paying attention to that. And I get to the point sub 80 yards ish that I start range finding the tree because I, in your head, you get in a rush. At least for me, I always feel like I got to be in the tree. I got to be there right now, but that's the worst thing that you could do. That's the worst mentality that you could have. The mentality that I, that I try to keep, that's very difficult to do is you need to be patient and you need to make sure you're not making a mistake. You scouted 1200 miles boots on the ground this year. You ran 90 cameras. You're in this moment right now. Don't blow it. Don't screw it up now, man. You put a lot of work in to get to this spot. It's like grinding on the last rep of a bench press. That's what it, it's, it's difficult to do. It's, it's like such a mind game, but 
So anyway, so what I do is I'll range find the tree and I'll tell myself, okay, the tree is 86 yards. I need to be at the base of the tree in an hour and a half. I've got one minute per step and that's what I'm going to do. And I mean, I can get within 80 yards early season of a buck with no wind because I'll take one step per minute and I'll stop. And I will just continue that process. You know, I'll, I'll look on the ground. I'm looking around. I'm like, okay, foot there, heel lands. It's a very slow roll with no pressure on that foot. I'll actually shift my weight back and forth to make sure there's no sticks under the leaves. And when I feel confident, I apply pressure and then I stop. And then I look for the next spot for another 30 seconds. I'm looking for, you know, is there a new rub I didn't see? Is there more acorns falling? What are the squirrels doing still? If I feel like I'm in a rush, I just sit right back down. But I keep that same process. I keep this like foot rolling, shifting pressure back and forth, making sure I'm not breaking a stick process the last hundred yards. And then I finally get to the base of the tree that I want to get up in. And that process is just as painful, to be honest with you. It's normally, I, I normally will hang a stick, but I will not set a stick until there's some sort of noise. So I've got areas where I'm close to the road and when a car drives by, I'll set the stick. And, you know, that might be 10 or 15 minutes in between vehicles. I've, when I killed the 186, I was on the side of the tree for, I don't know, maybe an hour and a half before I got up there. And I had to be though, because he was bedded 80 yards away dad's buck was better at 80 yards away and it was the same process it was just this you know i'm waiting for anything uh squirrels chattering jays sounding off it could be a gust of wind anything at all to just break up that noise of that stick hitting that tree like you know as you set your stick you always get a little bark like that grinding noise i just try to avoid it when i get up top same thing with the stand i i just set it the same way and uh that's pretty much the process it's it's (laughs) My process for, I would say the number one thing that I'm focused on, the number one, if I look at the majority of the deer on the wall, especially in the hills, the biggest thing that I have going for me is that just methodical access between the access route and then the actual act of accessing like that. Like I said, the majority of the people I take with me are like, dude, there's just rip the bandaid off. I'm like, well, man, if you rip the bandaid off, the deer's going to run away. So we worked really hard to get in front of this deer. Let's just Let's just keep doing it. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And that's why I wanted to ask that question to you specifically, because, and, and you'd probably agree, I don't know what the percentage is, right? We'll speculate 80, 90, whatever it is. I, th- I feel like that percentage that high of hunts are ruined by poor access or by being in a rush. Like you said, rip the bandaid off. You know, people are so anxious to get in there and hunt. I I get it. I am too. You are too. But if you don't take that predator, you know, inner predator with your access and your setup, it's so many times, especially bed hunting. I mean, you can get away with it more on on hunts and other things, but especially bed hunting, especially early season. You know, the the animal that 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 comes to to mind there is like a mountain lion. Like if you take a mountain lion approach and, you know, everything they do is stealthy and they're stalking and they're slow and they're patient and they're observing everything. If you take that approach, I mean, there is no, like to me, a mountain lion is like the ultimate predator because you just don't know they exist. You don't know they're there. And so I try to take that same approach of just even, even as much as their padded feet, the way that they walk with their padded feet, they're just quiet. And so we have boots on, but you can still make that work by just rolling your feet the right way. 
you know, there's so many little things. Um, it all comes back to me reading that book when I was a kid, to be honest with you, that art, I, th I think it's called the art of still hunting, but I'm not positive on the name of it, but it started there and then it's just evolved. Well, I want to talk about, uh, we talked about this briefly earlier about questioning everything and assumptions. And while we're talking about mistakes that I think people make, and this is my opinion, but I think a lot of guys are overconfident in their assumptions with like limited data. So here's a hypothetical example to illustrate the point. A guy, he's out glassing or he's out spotlighting, sees a big buck in a bean field late September. He goes, does some casual in-season scouting and finds a larger than I ever drub. And he just says to himself, this rub is definitely that deer. That's his, you know, that's the extent of his scouting. And then he's basing his hunt on that. So talk to me about, do you, uh, do you ever make assumptions in the process of killing a specific deer? And if you do assume anything, are you going to take action to like firm yeah, up those assumptions? Question. And if uh, you do, what's that yeah, look like? I'm, I make a ton of assumptions to be honest with you. Uh, it's normally... I would say that it's normally going to be scouting based, like pre-scouting based in preseason where like the bed thing, for example, like I find all these beds and I assume that he's laying in one of those beds. He very well might not be, but I have had some, some success from that. I've had failures from that as well. So I would say that the bedding is, is definitely an assumption that time of year. Um, I do have areas where like if I glass a good one, I assume he's in the system behind it. And if I go in there and I can verify the right things, I'll take a shot at it. Like, you know, I have areas. Real quick, the, real quick to interrupt, define the right things. What are you verifying when you go in there? I mean, yeah. So I if know, I glass let's, let's a buck in a field, get it let's out say it's before season or leading up to season, typically what I'll do is I will the next day, if I have free time, I'll dive into that system. Even if it's pre-scouted, I'll dive in there. And I'll try to verify some sort of sign in that area. So do I find a bed that's being used? Like I'll tear these areas apart. Uh, is there big tracks down in the bottom where they're crossing a ditch? Tracks is a huge thing. If he's hard horned, is there rubs in there? Because typically what I've seen is I find at least some sort of, some sort of small rub in an area early season that a buck's inhabiting. Like it could be, you know, a one inch sapling, but there's still going to, going to be something. Uh, is there any scrapes opened up? Is the scrape getting peed in? You know, I, I really look at things like that. If I look at trails leading off bedding, are the leaves all turned over? Is the dirt moist from where the leaves have been turned over in the last couple of days? Or is it really dried out, for example? Um, so, you know, what's the browse look like? Does, like if it's greenbriar bedding or he's crossing the spine of a ridge and it's greenbriar, is there any fresh browse where it's not browned up yet? You know, I'm kind of looking for things like that. Um, they're all pretty obvious to see, to be honest with you, but... I'm definitely diving into that system and saying, okay, he is in here. So if I see him here in this field again in season, chances are he's coming off of that bed because I just verified that route. So I always like to, I, it, to me, it's worth it to go in and scout and blow the system out, even if it's a week before season, just to get that intel. Like I like to have that rock solid data as much as possible. Um, but, you know, I can think of an example where I could have screwed up really bad too real quick where with the dad's buck, I was, so I'm, I'm walking my way in, accessing my way in. And there's a piece of private that I had to basically make an L around to like get where I needed to be. And that's why I was on my hands and my knees. Cause I couldn't come in the other drainage because that drainage was private. So I had to be on that ridge side 
for a certain amount of time. So I'm crawling to make sure he can't see me on that adjacent ridge. And as I make that L at that turn, there was some white oaks right there. There was some whites, some reds. Uh, and I, I hit that and it's getting fed on like crazy. I mean, it is being absolutely hammered and I'm sitting here like, man, this is, this is getting hit hard. So I just like, I just start looking around a little bit. I'm like, well, there's no real like giant feeding sign, which you don't normally find anyways, but I don't see any obvious tracks. I don't see any obvious rubs. Like there's a lot of deer in here. There's, you know, deer scat everywhere, but I'm assuming that deer is wind-based over there. So he was in, I'm assuming he's on the backside of that hub and I haven't got to that point yet. And he would have to travel a long ways to get here. So he could be here. Like I guarantee you that deer fed on that flat at some point in his life, but I just didn't think that it was right for the wind direction we had for the day. So I took the shot based off, I mean, talk about an assumption right there. I assumed that that, that flat that's getting fed on isn't the deer that I'm after. And you know, by everything that we, we preach, that's the hottest sign you can get. There is hot sign telling me that these deer are feeding on these whites right now. But I said, yes, they're feeding here. Like the data is all telling me this, but I'm going to assume that based off the wind, he's further that way. And that was the only thing that led to killing that deer. If I would have sat there that night, I wouldn't have seen him. So, but yeah, I mean, to come back to what we were talking about, I just think that it's, you know, if you're, if you glass a deer, I, I personally depends on the situation. Uh, if it's, if it's a big rub, I would probably still need some sort of other information to be honest with you, but it depends on the situation. Um, maybe it would be enough if it's close enough to bedding. If it's a very, depends on the system. If the system's very like macro level and there's a bunch of different bedding areas, that rub wouldn't really make me feel confident in anything unless I went in there and scouted it hard anyways. Yeah. And I want to circle back to something you said there. And you, you know, you said you made the assumption that that deer is not feeding in that Oak flat, but there are a lot of deer. And I think that's like a key differentiation, right? You're hunting a specific mature buck. You're not hunting deer and yeah, the sign's hot, but it's not big buck sign hot. So even though it's an assumption, I feel like you deduced based on the facts that were available and the sign that didn't it's in there. I mean, we're all, we're always dealing with some level of probability, right? And the probability that that specific buck in there sounds like was lower. So, um, you know, it's interesting to just to hear your thought process and those specific details, which led to your decision to keep moving past what otherwise, like you said, that's what's preached hunt the hot sign. Well, I mean, if you're, if you're hunting deer, sure. Pop a stand up there. But if you're hunting that specific buck that you have data on, that's wind-based bedding and a different part of the hub, like, I, I don't know, I think thinking really critically about these things, that's where you, you get to the next level and yeah, you start and, making, you know, I've got a thought process behind that and, too. And it's, it's the whole bedding versus food thing. And in my opinion, if you have limited food, I think that the food takes precedence over the bedding. So if you have, let's say you have, uh, equal bedding areas, if you have limited food, well then I'm going to go to the, I'm going to hunt the bedding area that's closest to that food. Does that make sense? But if I have food everywhere, I'm going to hunt the better bedding area. Yep. So it's, you know, like less food means hunt the, less food means hunt near the food. More food means hunt the specific bedding area. And that was one of those circumstances. We had, that year we had whites all over the place early season. 
So, okay, on my way in, there's whites dropping everywhere. So I'm going to go to the bedding area I think that deer's inhabiting and hunt that. But if there was only a couple white oak flats that were hot, it might have been a totally different situation. He may have been on those whites at that time. So it's just, like you said, you have to take all these factors. You have to try to come up with a plan that's going to... That, that that just feels right, to be honest with you. Like there's going to be, there's always going to be a certain level of feel right with this whole thing. Like we talked about earlier with the gut instinct and you just have to be able to accept that whether it's a failure or a win, because <laughs> chances are the majority of the time I make that call and I, I could be wrong. You know what I mean? It's just, it's so situational. It is. Yeah. yeah it's it, always it a calculated gamble, calculated no matter gamble. how much intel you have. Well, three more questions here, and these should be a little quicker, and then we'll wrap up. And I like to ask this of every guest because I think these are, you know, pretty value-added questions. So if you were starting over, let's say you're 18 now, knowing what you you know now, give me the two or three tips that have had the most disproportionate return on investment. What is the most bang-for-your-buck things that you've learned as honor? That is a really good question. Um, you know that... <laughs> I'm going to go off on a tangent for a second and then we'll reel this back in. But I think it's important to say if I was eight, if I was 18 again, I would tell myself, Hey, sure. Don't be such a selfish hunter and don't think about just yourself and don't be so closed minded and go have fun and hunt with your loved ones a little bit. Cause I look back now and man, what I would do to just sit in a tree one more time with my dad and my grandpa, that would just, that would be, you know, I I would give up every deer on my wall for one more set. And so that is, uh, that's (laughs) probably not the answer you expected, but to bring it back tactic based, I would say that being, I, it goes hand in hand almost, but being open-minded is just a huge thing. You know, there was a time when I was really big on scent control. Like I did the whole thing. I did it all. I listened to a couple guys that led me down a scent control road and I just, there was no ROI there for me. It was very little. So I've steered away from that. Um, but even, even like hill country tactics, you know, I've been, I get deemed a, a, I actually got deemed a bed hunter for a long time, but I've killed a lot of deer on field edges. I've, I'm, I'm as aggressive as I need to be in the situation. And so I've just, you know, learned over the years that don't get caught up in any one specific tactic and anything can work. And uh, I don't know if you've listened to the podcast at all, but one thing I always try to do is if I have a guest on that has a very good theory and they're very detailed and they kill a lot of deer with a strategy, what I typically do is I learn from that, but I also go try to find somebody that is the opposite of that. And so like we had a mock scrape podcast and then we had a guy that talked about the downfalls and the downsides of mock scrapes. That way I have the entire picture in my head and then the listeners do as well, where I'm like, you know what? Yeah, I can take a ton from the guy that makes the mocks. He kills a ton of big deer in Michigan. He's an excellent hunter. Uh, look up to him a ton. And same thing with the guy that doesn't like mocks, that doesn't like them because they attract hunters when you build them and you make these big, beautiful scrapes. It brings other hunters in the system. So, you know, you look at that and it's like, well, okay, the only way I can accomplish both and take a little bit of both is to be open-minded and look at the exact situation I'm in and just try to figure out what I need to utilize here. Is it high pressured where I don't want to put a mock in here because it'll attract hunters or is it low pressured and kind of secluded and out of the way where if I make a mock like Troy Pottinger in Idaho, for example, if I make a mock, is it going to get left alone? The deer can actually do what they should be doing to it. 
Uh, I can think about that with hunting hubs, low versus high, for example. You know, if I look at a hub system five years ago, I'm hunting that thing low every time. But now I know a bunch of really good hunters that hunt them high when they're hub hopping over the backside or coming off the specific ridges or traveling the hogs back on the top side. There's just, there's no guarantees in anything we do in hunting. And I think that each situation is going to just need a little bit of a different answer. And so the only way to accomplish that and to get good at it is to keep an open mind and trust your gut. No, a bunch of great tips in there for sure. And agree with all that. And it's funny, uh, there's a lot of different tactics that people utilize that are, you know, in different places, a lot of people that are super successful. There's no one size tactic that fits every situation, every state, whatever. So I, I agree, you know, be open-minded, try different things. And and something that I've done over the last several years is I never ground hunted at all in Michigan. I ground hunt probably the majority of the time now. And Kind of going back to what I said earlier about, oh, if you bust a deer out, now you know exactly what you did. Well, if you have a busted ground hunt, you learn that. And the sooner you put that knowledge in your toolbox or that tool in your toolbox, the sooner you have it for the rest of your life. So, I mean, don't be afraid to totally experiment, agree, right? I mean, that goes along with keeping an open mind. Yeah. And then give me one or two mistakes that you made. You, you kind of talked about scent control. Or maybe a tactic that you held on for too long thinking like, oh, I have to oh, do this. But Well, last year was the season of mistakes really for matter. me. Um, it was, you know, I hunted 72 times. I never saw a shooter buck with antlers on his head from the stand. And then I caught up to my target the last day of season with no antlers left. He, he shut out the night before. So um, <clears throat> I learned a ton from that. I would say the biggest thing was like from a tactic specific thing, is I really wanted to hunt that deer on the leeward side of the ridge. So I mainly scout leeward systems, um, and there's a lot of reasons for that, and I believe in a lot of it. I believe in mainly scouting leeward systems because I believe the majority of the time, the majority of the deer are going to be on that side of the ridge. But it's not a guarantee, and if you get into chasing a specific buck, you have to be open-minded enough to say, okay, he could go wherever he wants. He's a living, breathing animal. He can go live wherever the heck he went. He could live in the middle of the road if he wants to. It does not matter. So I was trying to chase that deer on the leeward side. And what I should have done is ran the spine of that ridge at any point in that last two weeks of season because it's closing down on me fast and just verified if there was sign crossing the spine of the ridge or not. But I was very confident in the leeward thing. And so I was just stage hunting these leeward bedding areas. And as I'm stage hunting these areas, I'm just not having encounters with them. And finally, a couple days left in season, I decided to hunt that same side, but I wanted to come in from the backside of the ridge. I want to come up the windward spine. So I'm coming up the windward side of that ridge, and I bumped that deer off his bed. And I'm like, holy crap, he's bedded on the wrong side of the ridge. Well, now I've only got a few days left of season. So I slap a camera up real quick, uh, let it go for a couple days. I go in there, I check it, and I'm hunting around this system the whole time. And bam, he's back in that bedding area. He shows back up. So now I'm, you know, now I'm like, okay, I have a couple of days to kill him. And I ended up getting close, but I didn't kill him. But the biggest thing there is I wasted a week and a half hunting the wrong side of the ridge just based off assumptions. And he was, it was tough because he was still traveling the leeward side, but it was after dark. So he was still leaving the sign I was looking for. I kept finding big tracks, I kept finding fresh rubs, I kept finding, you know, fresh scat. 
Everything I needed. I knew the food source he was feeding on. I was getting him on camera after dark, but it wasn't like that far after dark. And so I just like, I just assumed that he was right there close and he was three quarters of a mile away on the wrong side of the ridge and it took me too much time. So it, I would say that staying open-minded and then the other thing too is uh, I was in uh, maintenance in a factory for a long time. And one thing that I was taught very early on, I've actually never thought about it like this, but I was taught very early on that anytime you're troubleshooting something, you need to do your best to cut the problem in half. So I was an electrician, for example. So I would like, let's say that it's, uh, is it a main power problem, high voltage power, or is it a control power issue? Well, what I would do is I would cut that problem in half. So, okay. So I would test my high voltage. High voltage is good. Okay. I'm not getting the control signal. So now I know it's on the low voltage side. So I've split the problem in half. What I could have did in that situation is troubleshot it the same way. Walk the spine of the ridge, looked for sign because he was leaving sign crossing the spine of that ridge and said, okay, I just cut my problem in half. But instead I attacked it from one end and then it took me a long time to get over there. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of cases where I could have killed that deer coming off bedding on that leeward side, but there's always going to be the situation where it's going to take you longer than it would have if you just would have cut your problem in half. So that's, that's a way that I'm going to start looking at this whole thing a little bit different. I've, I've typically stayed off the spine of the ridges as much as possible. If I think the deer bedded close to them, just because I don't like inducing that pressure up there, but in that situation, it came back to bite me. So yeah, it's, uh, it was, it was something. Yeah. Interesting take for sure. And I mean, deer, every individual deer has its own personality, just like people do. And yeah, 90% of them or whatever the percentage is end up on the leeward side, but there's always some, uh, you know, variation in deer, just like there is in people. So interesting take and, and great point there. Last thing I have for you, Jake, uh, Coming into 2023, Ooh, where are you so, hunting and where are your goals? Uh, Kentucky starts off in a couple days. The goal down there for Kentucky is I just want to I want to have a bloody arrow. I want to go down there and I just want to kill a, a buck, a good buck. I'm not doing the giant chase out of state. My goal out of state is to kill some deer and have some fun with my friends, to be honest with you. So I'm going to go to Kentucky. We put a lot of work in down there. We've got some... Uh, Quite a few cameras down in hub systems. We've done the same process I run here in Ohio. Going to go down and just try to catch one coming off a north facing slope early and see if we can get them on the ground. Uh, Ohio, I told myself that I was just going to chase a good buck this year just to get back into it and build my confidence back up after last year. And of course, after I say that, I get a picture of a giant deer. So <laughs> that's plans have changed in Ohio, to say the least. Plans have definitely changed. Game um, on. But that's, that's good. That's, you know, it gets the heart going a little bit. So I'm excited about that one. And then we should have, uh, Indiana slash Illinois, depending on how those tags pan out and Kansas will be a guarantee, uh, you know, mid November ish. And that should be a, a fun rut hunt. So the goal this year is honestly, man, just to go out and have a lot of fun, get some hunts in with my friends and family, uh, try to make some memories Still going to get that giant pursuit in Ohio, which is always fun. So um, it's actually the deer I chased right up until the one that shed out on me. So I'm going to chase him early, but I have an idea where he's going to be late. And so I'm excited to see how that one pans out. I've 
I didn't have a target to chase last year until the last week of season. So having a target already that I can just at least, you know, get excited about just feels good again. It just feels like, you know, I'm excited for it. But, uh, but yeah, that's, that's the biggest thing. Awesome, man. That sounds like a lot of fun. Last thing, uh, turn it over to you for people that are interested in learning more about yep. you. Well, hey, thank you, you a media. ton for having me on you know, here. I'm very honored to be on your show. Um, I'll have to get you on the In Session podcast eventually. We'll get you over there. So I run and host the Latitudes In Session podcast, and it's another tactic-based podcast. It's basically the approach I've taken on it is having guests on that are very detailed in like one specific thing, and I basically just interview them, try to learn from them is what it is. And then we're just recording it as well. So it's actually your interview style is very similar to my interview style where I can tell that you're genuinely interested in learning and you're not just, you know, doing it for clout or anything else. you you truly love this stuff and that's, that's important to me. So, um, yeah, that's the in session podcast on Instagram. It's the Jake Bush. And, uh, I post some stories of the hunts throughout the year over there. And on YouTube, we also have, uh, the in sessions that we filmed with a couple hunters next year, we're going to ramp it up a little bit. And we have our grit web series over there as well, where we do the films from last year and then the hunt recaps. So, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah. And I've checked out some of the content, great stuff. The stories on Instagram are always real positive and motivational. And the stuff that you're putting out at, you know, the In Session podcast, top notch too. So, recommend anybody that hasn't checked Thank that you, out, man, to head on over that. and check out Jake's stuff. Good, good stuff for sure. All right, well, that's all I had. Hey, thanks again for your time. I know, uh, especially during your own podcast, these things eat up a lot of time, and time is valuable, especially as we come into the season. It's funny you said you're going to Kentucky this weekend. Oh, I'm heading awesome, out Friday man. night for. Uh, Heck yeah, good luck out there. And hey, so, thank you guys for listening that. as well. Good luck if you got some hunts coming up here. I'm sure that everybody's getting ramped up now. So, yep, thanks for having me on, man. All right. Well, thanks again, Jake. We'll catch you later.